Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. Don't be afraid of it. Get in there and start slugging. And when things go wrong, you can get angry. Anger is fine. But don't be afraid of it. Don't ever say, ever, I was wrong to get in. Guess what? You've already been turned the right way. You've already been shown the door to go through. Go through it. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I am humbled by all of your response and everything you've written to me and all. I just got another thank you note today on my desk. It's nonstop, and I never thought that when I did this that it would be that way, but I'm glad that this is providing something for all of you that is enjoyable. It's so enjoyable for me because time stands still, and I love when that happens, and the only time it ever really happens to me is when I'm engaged with somebody who I really have an enormous amount of respect for how they are and what they do and how they've gone through their life and their career and it's really important to me it's a big part of my life and i'm glad i could be in a position to share these conversations with you thank you thank you thank you and another person i need to thank today is my guest who i am so excited about and that's larry miller and if you don't know larry miller that would be a shame because he is one of the most iconic stand-up comedians and actors from my generation. And I say that because stand-up comedy and acting, it just doesn't happen. For some reason, it's a different muscle that most stand-up comedians never seem to be able to figure out how to operate the muscle. There's examples of those comedians who we all know are brilliant and geniuses who for some reason, have never been able to walk into a room and pick up a piece of paper that's written by somebody else and deliver the lines exactly the way their mental picture of it is. Yet when they get a chance to do their own show with their own words, a lot of times they're phenomenal. 
and normally these cold opens, I look at my guest and I, there's something that comes to me and something just stands out at me that was a part of my life. And that's the nutty professor. And I want to share with you all a story that I may have shared long ago or on another podcast, but it was a time in my life as a manager when I represented somebody who I consider to be a genius and somebody who I believe has changed the face of comedy and the way people perceive comedians and sketch and acting in your own projects. And that's Dave Chappelle. And I was fortunate, as you know, to represent Dave for between eight and nine years. And it was some of the greatest moments of my life. A wonderful, wonderful man and real special times. But one of the things about Dave that was difficult, and I'm sure he would agree when he was younger, he come out to Los Angeles and it's daunting. You don't want to fail. You want to do great work. And when you're doing your stand-up, for those of you out there, you're writing, creating performing, executive producing, directing your own one person show every time you go on stage and you control your variables of how you succeed or you don't succeed. Granted, you could run into an audience that is wearing UN headsets and they really don't really get what you're saying. But for the most part, it's up to you. But when you're going to a situation where their stakes are high and it's a big movie and you got to walk into a room with a director who you know has seen every actor in your type and range and even those that aren't, and you have to go in and you have to create a choice that is psychically bound to the director of exactly what they want or better than they want. One thing for you out there in any job you're working in all over the world, just to give you insight into this crazy profession, what happens is normally a breakdown that's released of a project. And when I say a breakdown, I mean like a, a something electronically or a sheet of paper that you get from a company called Breakdown Services. Now, just to preface, if you're an actor working at some of the biggest agencies in the business, you're finding out about these roles way ahead of any breakdown because they represent the directors, the producers, and you're just going in and you're, they're telling you what's happening. But for most comedians and, and, and actors... They get a breakdown. The breakdown says the executive producers of the project, the producers, the director. It says the role. It says the description of the role. And whether it's, you know, where it is on the call sheet normally in terms of is it the lead, is it the co-lead, whatever it is, whether they're looking for household names or not. And it's daunting when you think about this whole situation because there's nothing written. There's no director's crib notes that says, okay, the director has a vision that you should play it this way. You should walk with a limp. You should carry yourself a certain way. And what's fascinating, if you watch any film, you look at the actor's choices on certain things, the subtle choices. Like It's amazing what you see, like Ben Kingsley in Sexy Beast, the way he walks down the airport. He has his arm up parallel to his body, and he's He's got the coat on it and it's a choice of how he's walking to James Franco when he has the handcuffs on him and if you notice he has two fingers out and he's holding the other two fingers with his other hand. 
these might seem like the most minimal, ridiculous things that don't make any difference at all, but they do. Everything makes a difference, and the director is thinking, how is this person going to come in and blow me the fuck away? Because I've looked at a hundred motherfuckers, and I haven't found one person that moves me. But the guy I'm sitting across, Larry Miller, has figured out a way to go into these rooms hundreds of times and snatch the role away from people who've gone to Juilliard or people who've been in situations where they've studied acting their whole lives. And so did Dave Chappelle. But Dave Chappelle was nervous because, you know, you got to go into these auditions and you got to give them something. And he's 18, 20 years old. He's never been in this situation before. And I remember an agent named Martin Lisak, who started at Abrams Artists, went to UTA, United Talent Agency, went to CAA, and now recently, with a big shakeup with CAA, moved to United Talent Agency back again with his partner in crime, Jason Heyman. But we represented Dave Chappelle along with other agents like Ruth Ann Secunda, who's now at the ICM. And we were trying to get him to do certain things that were important that he wanted to do you could feel he wanted to do them but for some reason i would call him and say listen we have an audition for you with tom shadiak who's a brilliant director who has now did a documentary which is tremendous i strongly suggest you take a look at it and he hasn't really been doing much directing lately but at the time he was making about 10 million dollars a movie he was the biggest comedy director there was out there and we finally were able to get an appointment for Dave. Dave Chappelle for this role and it was the last appointment that the guy was taking he'd cast it for a long period of time and he was tired and we finally convinced him to see Dave and he said we'll see him at seven o'clock in my office Universal bring him down now Dave was the kind of guy he was so affable and lovable and back then you had paper scripts you didn't have electronic scripts and he was the kind of guy who you'd give him a script or something and you'd be like, did you read the script? And he's like, oh, Barry, man, I'm sorry. Could you give me another one of those? I left it at the club. <laughs> For a project, you could possibly give him five scripts. And he loved the role. And the role was of like a Def Jam comic host at the club who was going to be giving shit to Eddie Murphy and doing comedy. And there were a couple of really big scenes, one when Eddie Murphy was his normal self and one was he was the larger character. And Dave, it seemed like, kept delaying the inevitable of trying to get this audition with Shadyac because we had tried before and we'd reschedule and cancel. And Shadyac was, you know, he was like, he, he would like to see Dave, but he was like, he'd heard about him, but he was tired of, tired of waiting. And he said, this is it. It's the last time. So I remember I drove to where Dave Chappelle was to pick him up and drive him to this audition. And I think we picked up Martin Lisak on the way and we drove together trying to get him psyched to be there. And we're waiting out in the office. There's no one in the office auditioning. It's over. This is it. And Tom Shadiak, at this point in time, you know, as Larry Miller knows, if it's the last audition, Tom Shadiak knows who he wants. He has his first choice, which as an artist, you don't really realize that maybe if you went in a little earlier, you might be that choice. But Dave didn't. He waited. He waited. He waited. 
and finally went in and he didn't even understand that the stakes were higher because now he this is it you either got it or you don't and he's got somebody in mind to do it and I remember right before Dave went in he said I have an idea Barry I have an idea sort of involves Charlie Barnett and Def Jam comedy I said, okay, because Charlie Barnett I represented, and him and Dave were very close, and Charlie was the greatest street performer of all time, very high energy, and we'll talk about him. And Dave says, get me a towel. I said, what? He says, get me a towel. Can you get me a towel? I said, sure, I'll find a towel. I ran all over the lot to try to find one of those white towels that went around his neck. He got it. He put it around his neck. He says, I got this, B. And I waited in the other room. Tom Shadiak called him in. And I hear all this yelling and loud screaming like a Def Jam comic would, you know, like the most animated Def Jam comic ever with that that urban, almost ebonical kind of like diction that you'd see on a Def Jam thing. And it was so loud in there. And I'm like, and you couldn't hear any laughter because it was just him and Tom, nobody else. And he came out of the office and Tom Shadiak came out of the office and he was like... That's exactly what I was looking for. That was wonderful. I'll call you guys tomorrow. And Dave Chappelle went in there at the last minute and channeled Charlie Barnett and the Def Jam comic. Because as he was walking in, I could see him pulling down his pants a little lower and putting his, pulling his boxer shorts up a little higher, pulling his hat on his head to the side and down. And he did it. He got the gig. For those of you out there who are in the business or in any business, you're always going to be in a situation when you go into an audition or you go into a job interview or wherever you go, and there's always a choice. There's always a first choice. Even if you're the first person in, there's somebody in their mind that isn't you. And my advice to you would be, don't psych yourself out. Don't think you can't do it. Just think about going in there and creating those holy shit moments, creating an original impression for whoever you're trying to impress. And if you do that, and as I say, and if you're undeniable, you will always be in a position to win. And even if you don't get that gig in that person's mind you will always be there for his next gig and you will probably get that next gig or you'll get another role in the movie or you'll get another job position where you are at that firm so just go forward positive and do an original unique presentation of the best representation of yourself and I guarantee you, you will always get the job. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. All right. Now take us through your first big break 
in the film business, which I would imagine is Pretty Woman. Well, sure, by golly, Pretty Woman. I've always loved Gary Marshall, and he directed that, and he hired me. Dory Zuckerman is a casting woman who brought me in. She knew me from everything, from plays out here I was in, from the improv as a comic, and she was involved with getting, as you know, in a lot of Gary Marshall movies, they'll have four or five folks in them who can really do a good job, but you don't really know. Just love the guy. And uh, at that, you know, at that point, to go see, she brought me in. He wanted to see me improv a little. And so she brought me into, well, a casting meeting with him in a hotel somewhere or in, a, no, offices. And I sat there and he just, you know, set me up for, there was no part written for for that guy, the manager of the of the clothing store. And uh, so I did a couple of things and and we laughed and just it was just great to be in Dory was there and it was fabulous. And then I found out I got the part. And that spending it's only one day's shooting, but a great day. And that was in Beverly Hills. And that's what a lot of people don't know who aren't in the entertainment business, because you see Larry and I believe it was two, no, three scenes. Was it was it three scenes, Larry? I can't remember. I know there were two big scenes. Yeah. And and but a lot of uh, people don't understand that. How is it possible that he did one day when it seemed like he was in the movie? And what they do for continuity's sake is they shoot in that store. All those scenes get shot all at one time, uh, back to back to back to back, and then they're cut in the movie. But a lot of people think, well, he must have worked a week or two or whatever. But that's not the case. No, and it was wonderful. I got a chance to. We just made up and added a lot of stuff. Felt like calling the <laughs> for the sales girls. The uh, just uh, I remember just saying uh, Mary Pat, Mary Kate, Mary Francis, Tova. Come on, everyone <laughs> over here now. And it just felt fun to me and funny to do it that way. I remember, remember shouting out to someone on the set in between takes. What's another Mary? Mary, 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 Mary Pat, Mary Kate. And then someone said, Mary Francis. I said, Mary Francis. That'll do. <laughs> and then, and action. But it was wonderful. And then all the bits Gary knows how to do so well. Whew. And tell me, now you come in and he'll say, oh, well, what do you know? Yes, is it going well? Is it going well? And you'll, you say, and action. You know, and he's just, but he knows. He knows who he's working with. He knows who he's dealing with. And it was just great. And there was a feeling on the set that day that Dory told me that it was good, that it was working really well. And I'm going to share with our audience what it means to work really well on a set for a stand-up comedian who does his first acting job or one of his first acting jobs or even those in the future. There's one thing that happens when you know that you've done a great job. You finish a take where you've done their words or you've improved your own and the director yells cut and there is like it's like it's like 80 people have held in their laughter for like three minutes and then it just bursts out like some kind of orgasmic thing and you're like you're on the set and you hear all these people laughing and applauding because they can't laugh during the scene or it'll ruin it and that's what probably happened to you larry yeah, it was very meaningful. It was just great. 
and lunch on the set. Again, these don't sound like astonishing things, but they really are. And uh, they sure were for me. And my parents were staying with me at that point. They were visiting and staying in my apartment. And I, you know, again, I know this doesn't sound very fancy. I didn't put them up at the Four Seasons. And I could have, but I, I didn't. I said, you know, you want to stay with me? And they could stay in my bed, which is a king-size bed. And uh, I feel like saying, you know, <laughs> I, I don't like, even I know like what that winking. means. Yeah, and, uh, but it was great. So essentially, I went home to my, you know, my apartment and just went home and saw my folks. And then we went out probably to Cantor's for dinner, you know. So, I mean, it was simpler. It sounds simpler than it was maybe but it wasn't simple at all, and it was it was very meaningful. There's nothing, nothing, people like you and I lo- like to do more than think about show business and talk about it and learn with it and from it, but with it. And I'm still doing that. I want to do it forever. If uh, every time, it, it's a great business. Every My wife and I have uh, two sons, and we may be the only parents in America who would like our kids to get into show business. We, My wife is a, an award-winning writer-producer, and we're a show business family. And, and the, the point is, there's nothing I like hearing more than a story about how someone got a job or didn't get a job or did the right meeting or blew the meeting. And it's wonderful. I can still say, I was in those offices, by the way. I, I worked for Tom and with Tom. He gave me an office there to hang my shingle as a writer. Everywhere he went to, around Universal, they were so gracious to me. For him and Jim Brubaker and uh, everyone he had there, I liked them uh, so much. And so I could see that office you were talking about, because I know it. <laughs> There's nothing better than thinking and talking about show business. I feel it's that way. I really do. And I just feel privileged to actually be sitting across you talking about it, because you've been in those situations all the time. Yeah. I think I've always been one of those, oh, I know that guy. And that's a fine thing to be. I worked at a lot of Tom's movies, by the way. He was always someone who gave you a great uh, sense of how to be on that set. He was always someone you could walk up to also and say, I, I, I got it. I could turn every engine on and just say, how about this? In fact, I remember one with Jim, and I always liked him so much. He was, uh, as the producer there. Jim Brubaker was his, I guess you'd call him his line producer, too, and yeah. a regular producer, and Tom didn't do anything without him. And a lot of times, directors will have somebody who's a line producer who they who, who he gives a credit to of a regular producer. And I'll just explain real quick. In film, the producer, the capital P producer, is the highest level credit that you can get in a movie and executive producer is the highest level credit you can get in television but line producer just for those of you who don't know it, I always thought it was the most difficult job in show business it's the guy who's basically responsible for every single line item on this movie. And when yeah. I say line item from the craft service guy serving the ham and Ritz cracker things to the location that you're in, in a house in Agora, to the, the lights that are being used for the shot, to the cameras, to the cameramen, and every single thing, his job is to get it under budget and to manage these people and make them happy yeah. throughout so the director doesn't have to worry about anybody being unhappy. You know how good Jim is at that? Many other things as well, but at that, 
when I was first meeting him, I hadn't met him yet. It was on one of Tom's movies, and I came there the day before the first day at work, and I had, I always liked Universal. I had an office there. It was great. It was like a very big home. And at any rate, I, I had just gone to Costco the day before, and they were selling shirts there for $14. Uh, this was a Ralph Lauren shirt. And I thought, well, what the heck? It's it's cotton and it's thick. It was sort of like but you a, had to buy eight of them in a pack. <laughs> and but they gave you peanut butter. But it was I so I got this shirt. It was red plaid. I was wearing it, and I'm uh, walking on the set, and I'm walking toward base camp. There, I haven't met Jim yet. For our audience who don't know this, base camp. Which, when I first went to a movie set, I had no idea what base camp was. I thought I was in the Marines. Basically, what happens is there's two places on a set that people congregate. There's the set where you're actually shooting, and there's the base camp where they set up all the trailers. They normally find the parking lot or some CVS lot or something where they put all the trailers and everybody, and the vans take you back and forth from your dressing room trailer, as you would say, which varies in size depending on your role and your status in the business from the size of a tour bus to the size of Ritz Cracker. And must have been a hundred feet away or more. And uh, and so Jim's sitting in a you know, movie chair that people know about, and Tom was sitting with him. And uh, he looked up, and uh, Tom uh, pointed to me and just, you know, said, we're a hundred feet away, 150 feet away. And, um, and here comes Larry. And like that, Brubaker just, uh, sh- just looks over and, and shouts, Costco, $14. <laughs> and I kept walking toward him, and I, and I laughed. But I remember thinking, this guy may be the greatest producer in the history of show business. How do you know everything? And uh, I, o- I always liked him. I, when I met him that, that minute, I just said, get a load of you. You... <laughs> He's very quiet and calm in his own way, but he's had every job on a set, every job in a studio, and he rose. You see his name. You see movies like The Right Stuff and uh, produced by Jim Brubaker, and you say, oh, holy mackerel, that's, uh, he's made a lot of great movies. At any rate, that uh, I still have that shirt, by the way. <laughs> Tell me about your biggest disappointment in show business and how you turned it around into something positive. Biggest disappointment in show business that I turned around into something positive. Uh, On The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, I was, uh, in fact, Seinfeld had taken me to a, a good clothing store in Beverly Hills. He said, look, you're on The Tonight Show now, and uh, you should have a better suit than the ones you've been wearing. And I, And he wasn't wrong, you know. And uh, he took me to a place doesn't even have a front. There was no facade. It was uh, you just know where to go in between the bushes there. <laughs> and it was it was great. I'd still be embarrassed to tell you what it cost. It was an Armani suit, and where I learned to say where your money is our money. <laughs> and the, I, the, How much did the suit cost? I, I'd be I'd be, be embarrassed to say. It's not like I today I don't suppose it's so huge but it's uh, you know it's still it's still a lot. Okay. And uh I bought two shirts to go with it. And uh this is a black double-breasted Armani suit 
and I got two ties to go with it. I still have the ties and the, and the suit. I wore that suit a lot and uh, so much that uh, my mom said, God bless her, after you know a certain amount, I wore it on every TV show I was on. Every one. And uh, she said, you know what? I know you're wearing that Armani suit because you, you, you bought it and you paid for it, but you could get another one, too. <laughs> that it was everyone for four years, five years, every single show, Tonight Show, Letterman, anything else, award on Jay's show, a bunch of times. I mean, I, I think even my friends started saying, get another suit. It's enough. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> And that was your biggest disappointment? No. <laughs> no, the biggest one was going to getting that suit, uh, taking it to the Tonight Show the first time. And I had just picked it up from the store in Beverly Hills. And I was there with Tom Stern, who was uh, an agent at the time. And we were always friends. And I loved getting places early. I love being early. Which is very, very important, everybody, if you can get there early for everything. Everything. And just to be there and to walk out onto the bare stage, of course, long before the band gets there and long before anyone else is in there, and see a couple of the folks like Ed McMahon would see you just walking out to the spot you're going to be on and just, just pacing it out, looking at where the curtains are, and not in a crazy way, but just enjoying it, loving it. And then seeing, looking at the desk going, how do you like this? And then going around backstage and knowing where everything is backstage. You can go to the refrigerator and get a soda. And and I uh, then the show taped in those, I think it was at 5.15. And uh, so at about 4.30, I went back into the dressing room there. And, uh, and Tom was there. And I, and I said, I think it's time to put on some Tonight Show clothes and my fancy new stuff. And he said, all right. And I, as I said, I'd hung it up and I uh, uh, took it out and the suit was in a, a plastic uh, bag that they, a black bag that they had uh, put it in. And I took it out and there were no pants. <laughs> the first time I'm wearing it on the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, no pants. <laughs> and I just lo looked at it and, I, and my mouth kind of moved a little and Tom said, is something wrong? And I said, no pants. <laughs> And he said, what? I said, there are no pants. And he looked at it, and he, you know, he just kind of freaked. What? What? No pants. There are no pants. What are we going to do? And I said, wait a minute. And they had the phone. I used the phone in the dressing room to call the store, and I did. And I got the salesman on the line. And he said, wait a minute, let me take a look. And he came back to the phone and said, you know, you're right. We didn't put the pants in the bag. And, you know, you want to crawl through the phone and strangle someone. But I did, of course, didn't I? Said what? He said, "Don't worry, uh, we'll send them over right now. They'll be there in plenty of time." Now, if you know Beverly Hills to Burbank <laughs> in the middle of the night by missile <laughs> is still twenty minutes. In rush hour, coming up to at four thirty, can be an hour, an hour and a half, two hours, three, five, nine hours. It doesn't matter. It's it's not thinkable. And I just said. All right, because I, there's no there's no way. Tom ran out of the dressing room to get Jim McCauley, and he ran into and this 
was the dressing room at the end, one end of things where there was a, a wall, a concrete wall. And he ran into that and got a lump on his forehead. I mean, he ran in at about 15 miles an hour. <laughs> like, agent running, just went, oh, I gotta, gotta, gotta get Jim, went, whammo! And I mean, you heard it. People in South America must have gone, ooh, what was that? And then Jim McCauley came in and Tom was there, a little dizzy from the lump. And it was, which is still growing. He really walloped himself. And and Jim said, all right. Uh, he said, you know what? Let me get, uh, oh, Jennifer, I'm sorry. I can't remember her name. Who's the wardrobe woman there at the Tonight Show. And uh, I'll tell her what it is. And they uh, she brought in a pair of, of black pants that could be suit pants that could have gone with the with the Armani jacket. Unfortunately, the pants had last been worn by William Conrad or someone <laughs> that size, and they were they were very big. They were like they were they were like very 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 big. Hang on, let me turn this thing off. Hang on. <laughs> You can take it. Don't worry about it. All right. Hello. (laughs) Hey, man. Uh, Can I call you back? I'm just, well, in the middle of something now. All right. Uh, Thanks. I'll I'll call you back. Bye. Speaking of uh, friends, let me turn this thing off. That was Mark Schiff calling. At any rate, Mark Schiff, a really great comedian, also wrote for The Letterman Show, didn't he? Yeah. And uh, at any rate, so... Actually, Mark Schiff, speaking of comedians, if I'm not mistaken, when Bill Hicks did his first set on The Letterman Show, which was edited out of The Letterman Show, which Letterman later brought his mom on to apologize, I believe they used a clip of Mark Schiff doing stand-up because he did warm-up for The Letterman Show then. Oh, how do you like that? I could be wrong, though. You'll have to ask him. Get me? I'll ask him when I call him back. Uh, at any rate, so t- uh, t- Jim McCauley comes in. The pants are there, and they're just... They're immense. And uh, she said, the wardrobe woman said, don't worry, we'll pinch them in the back to where they fit, and then it'll just come out in the back. But that's a big pinch. I mean, they that's immense. There was, a f- you know, two feet of <laughs> pinch material there. And so I, I, I just took them over and said, thank you very much. And I said to Jim, now the show has started, meaning the Tonight Show. You know, it's a show, and it's and it's right there. Meaning, like, here's the dressing room. Through those doors, that's the Tonight Show. It's your first time on. That I'm supposed to be on. With clothes. And so I just said, I just said, I I don't don't know what this do. And uh, Tom said, maybe it'll get here in time with the, uh, because I said to Jim, this is, this is this is like comedy pants, but not good comedy. <laughs> and he said, "Well, you got to you've, you've got to wear something." And he, God bless me, he was starting to get a little edgy now, also, because the show's on. <laughs> you know what's weird about the Tonight Show and all these shows? They they're they're what's called live to tape. Everybody. Yeah. So what that means is is that they shoot them to the exact time specifications of what the show will be so that when they get out of it there's very minimal editing that can be done it just goes they have they have it all timed out the commercial breaks will be 
And but what I never understood was if something's happening like that, why during a commercial break don't they just take another 15 minutes and have the band play a few numbers and just delay it? Uh, because the satellite feed doesn't have to come that quickly, but they never do. No, and the answer to that is it's <laughs> never going to happen, and and it shouldn't happen, and you don't want it to happen. You don't want to be the reason it happened. <laughs> so, uh, Jim just said maybe the other ones will get here. That's not going to happen. And uh, so we took the pants off my hand. I walked out in my underwear, which I don't care about anyway. It's just again, you're wearing your shoes. Seems and to be the, a running theme with you. That's right. It's not not a coincidence. And you know what? So we walked out down the hallway and uh, past the makeup room out to the uh, stage area, the behind you behind the stage there, and uh, they out to behind the curtain. So the first guest is on now, and and just you know, uh, and there's a guy behind the curtain who's going to send you out there. He pulls the curtain back and he's going to send you out there, meaning. You're going out there. <laughs> His job is n- not to listen to what's happening. He's going to, he puts his his hand on your shoulder, which is on your back, sort of. And he's he's used it before. He's good at his job, meaning when your name is announced, he's, he's going to pull that curtain with one hand, and you're going out there. <laughs> now, you may sit down and suck your thumb in the middle of the floor if that's what you want to do. But the fault won't be his. So I know this. So I'm standing there, and, and Jim takes the pants from me, and I said, I can't. And Tom says, and then this thing is now. And you're in your box. And I'm in my boxer shorts. And you're in your H, and has a whole a big bump. Of yeah, and it's, it's, it's like another person that bumped me. And so he says, you know what? I'll go outside. To the to the entrance there to the to, near the parking lot, and I'll wait. So when they get here with the pants, I can take the pants and bring them back here. And even Jim, even the guy behind the curtain, just went you know kind of uh, just kind of rolled his eyes because that's not going to happen. So Tom does an agent's jog out down the hallway and leaves the studio to go there. And I said, "Holy mackerel!" And then. You know, it's time for my segment. And I'm standing there in my underwear still, and Jim says, Larry, you better put the pants on. And I said, oh, I don't, you know what. Now, meanwhile, you're going to get the introduction you've been waiting for your whole life. The great Johnny Carson, first time a comic has been on the show introduction. <laughs> Almost everyone, I'm sure, has, has seen that, you know, that, uh, well, you know, folks, there's there's nothing better in the world than a good young comic. <laughs> And nothing harder to do, whatever it is, and the first time on the show, and this and that. And he, so so Jim says, Larry, put the pants on. And it comes back from the band. You know, after the commercial number they played. And you can hear Johnny uh, tap the card on you. And, All right, well, we have now. And Jim said, please, put the pants on now. Put the pants on this second. <laughs> And I said, you know, you're you're right, I guess. And uh, so I started to put the pants on. It just and you, it didn't feel right. And I said, oh lord. And I uh, and I and I buttoned them up and I, I zipped them up. Don't you know? At that second, here comes Tom Stern <laughs> jogging with an even larger bump on his head now, and holding up pants. And he's he's so crazed. He's actually yelling. I got the pants. 
I got the pants. And even a couple of stage people just go, shh. And, uh, and Johnny Carson says, uh, and, uh, and this is this young man's first time on the show. And I, and I just looked at Jim and looked at Tom. Tom comes running up. And after a, just a beat, I ripped off the big pants. I just un- unzipped and kicked him off, kicked him off the shoes, took Tom's, you know, pan- the, the pants from Tom and got, you know, the one leg in. And uh, next weekend he'll be at the punchline in Atlanta, and uh, and I and I got both legs in, and I start to tuck the sh- the, the shirt in, and I, I I got the shirt in and buttoned and did that, and Jim gave me the belt, and I just you know got one thing, and so please you know please welcome, and I realized there's no time for this, I just tossed him the belt again, <laughs> tossed it back to him, and Larry Miller, and this guy opens the curtain just as I. Button the one button on the double-breasted jacket, just the one, and just, and then just looked up, and the curtains open, and he he was pushing me out there, but he didn't have to. I wanted to go out there. I probably floated out there, and I did set the set. It was a great set. I was very happy. I got the big okay, and thanks. And I walked walked off again, and just said. Well, how do you like them apples? <laughs> that's a that's a story in show business that didn't go the way it looked like it was going to go. And I took that stuff off. And even Tom, who had some ice on his head now, was <laughs> in back in the dressing room and just, there was nothing to say. He said some nice stuff. It was a great, this great set. The set was great. Just great set. And he, he was still just vibrating. And then uh, we just stood there for a while and said, whew. And Jim McCauley, pardon me, Jim McCauley came back in and said something awfully nice, too. And I said, well, thanks, man. And then just looked at him and went, Whew. I said, you must have seen some nights far crazier than this. And he said, you can't imagine. <laughs> so I took my stuff off, put my day clothes, travel clothes, so to speak, back on, put everything back in the fancy bag. And and said, well, I guess we'll go. And had a great tonight show. And then walked back out to the parking lot. Now it's uh, still light out. It was a summery night, so it's about you know whatever it is now. It's about seven seven fifteen, seven thirty. So it's still sun sunny. And uh, I just said to Tom in the parking lot, and I just said, okay, well, see ya. <laughs> But because there's nothing to say, there's nothing still to. We're both reacting still to. It's light out, and it's as beautiful, you know, a day as could be in Los Angeles, and it's almost the feeling of did any of that happen? But it did. So now that's a good memory, and that's a story where it goes a little wrong, and then it goes very right. Incredible. Right. Last question: What advice would you give to the? young person starting out in a small town somewhere in the world who has a dream of maybe doing something special in the entertainment business as far as a writer, Mm. executive producer, stand-up comedian, actor, who might have shared a few moments with his dad on the couch laughing, but wondering, how is it possible? How can I, what do I need to do to get the kind of career that Larry Miller has. Well, thank you for saying it that way. 
you're, you're not going to like the sound of this, but it's the best advice you're ever going to hear. Don't be afraid of it. Get in there and start slugging. And when things go wrong, you can get angry. Anger is fine, but don't be afraid of it. Don't ever say, ever, I was wrong to get in. Guess what? You've already been turned the right way. You've already been shown the door to go through. Go through it. Now, if you're looking for the secret of show business or the secret of where the door is, there's no door and there's no secret. What you do is, as an actor, as a comic, as anything you want to be, start hanging out where all the people hang out who do that. And you know what? You'll learn something, and you'll get your first agent, and you won't like him. And so you'll get another one. Or the agent will hire you, and he won't like you. And he'll get another one. Don't be afraid of it. Just keep going, and keep swinging with both hands, and keep smiling, and keep saying, how do you like that? I'm in show business, and I'm never leaving. Larry Miller, this has just been so unbelievable. I've had the best time. You're amazing, amazing, Thank extraordinary you. man. You know, I've done probably close to 90 or 95 of these things. I don't ever remember laughing that hard. I don't ever remember crying that hard after I laughed or feeling the way I do after this podcast. And I'm very, very grateful. Thank you. You're welcome. And what a, as you say, what a proud moment to hear something like that. So thank you. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the podcast. I want to talk to you about an amazing documentary that I worked on a few years back called I Killed JFK, which was unlike anything I ever did in my life. It centered on a man who'd been in prison for 30 years. He was the only person in history to have admitted to killing Kennedy, and his story is unbelievable. He started as a runner for the mob. He was hired to drive two hit men from that city around Dallas, and he ended up being the guy who calibrated their weapons. And he was there that day with one of his own and took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy on the grassy knoll. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere else except on this documentary. So go to barrycats.com to the merch page and buy the documentary with the rare interviews of the five greatest historical experts in the world, many of which you'll hear on the next three weeks of podcasts. So just go to barrycats.com, the merch page, Pick up the documentary and interviews, and I guarantee it will reverse the way you feel about what happened that day in 1963 and change your opinion of the government and how it works and alter the way you think about things forever. Lastly, I want to talk to you about something really impactful and involves something really close to my heart, self-education. You see, throughout my life, I realized that every success I've ever achieved in my career has come from the education I received from my experiences in the business. And I truly believe that we all have the knowledge inside of us that others would kill for. And by sharing that, we can open up an entirely new world of possibilities for ourselves. That's why I'm so excited to tell you that I partnered up with my friend Tony Robbins, who's been number one in this field for 40 years. Along with his team of experts, Dean Graziosi and Russell Brunson, they'll show you how to take that valuable knowledge in your mind and turn it into an incredibly profitable mastermind workshop or event. 
just like they have and continue to do in their careers. And they're launching a new training program that's literally changing people's lives by helping people like you be a part of this $129 billion a year business. So it's an incredible opportunity for someone like yourself to build your own business, share your knowledge, and help and serve people in a huge way with the guidance of Tony Robbins, the best in the business. He's actually going to teach people like you how to make big money and build a successful business. So if you're ready to take your life to the next level, they're doing a free live training session today at barrykbb.com. That's B-A-R-R-Y-K-B-B.com. Look, I've done over 440 free podcast episodes of Industry Standard. And because of your incredible response, it's reinforced my belief that we're morally obligated to share and pass on our knowledge with the world and help other people in those ways. I truly believe this. And I really love this groundbreaking training program and how it can turn your knowledge into an extraordinary amount of money. So just go to barrykbb.com, that's B-A-R-R-Y-K-B-B.com, to this free training session with the best in the business, Tony Robbins. I guarantee you, it will change your life forever. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money Drop that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going far Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.